Welcome to State of the State, the monthly roundup of policy and research for the state of Michigan, brought to you by the Institute of Public Policy and Social Research at Michigan State University and our friends here at WKAR Studios. I'm Arnold Weinfeld, Associate Director for the Institute. And as always, I'm joined by Institute Director, Dr. Matt Grossman and MSU economist, Dr. Charlie Ballard. Later on, we'll be joined by our guest, Dr. Joseph Hamm, an assistant professor at MSU, who will discuss findings from a recent research project designed to identify how far people trust sources of information on the coronavirus and which factors shape people's trust judgments. But first, Charlie and Matt, uh, there's a lot going on in the state of Michigan. And uh, so a lot, a lot to talk about. Uh, let's start right away on the political end. The state Republican Party had their nominating convention uh, this past Sunday. Uh, convention at which they nominated candidates for attorney general, secretary of state, and university boards, as well as the state board of education. And at the end of the day, uh, those who are supported by uh, former President Trump won out over what we might term as mainstream Republicans. And so it was a big victory for co-party chair Misha Maddock and her husband, State Representative Matt Maddock, uh, who have been um, uh, favorites of Donald Trump for some time. But two days later, Mr. Maddock was summarily kicked out of the House Republican Caucus. Uh, and there are many uh, within the Republican Party that have since been bemoaning the fact that the candidates for attorney general and secretary of state will be a drag in a general election on the rest of the candidates uh, for governor, as well as down ballot for state house and state senate seats. Uh, Matt, you're the political scientist in the group here. What do you make of all this? Well, it is uh, not abnormal uh, for the previous party, for the previous president uh, in a party to, to weigh in, uh, in uh, races where the party makes a decision independent of the voters like uh, these uh, races. Uh, but it was highly abnormal for those endorsements to be made on the basis only of contesting the previous election results uh, for candidates for secretary of state and attorney general who really had no qualifications other than their efforts to overturn the results of the previous uh, election and came to prominence only through uh, that continued uh, contestation. So uh, Trump's uh, efforts to overturn the previous election or at least uh, uh, keep fighting about it uh, continue and have now resulted in uh, statewide uh, Republican candidates uh, likely uh, coming from uh, uh, that uh, part of the, the party. Uh, they, in one case, uh, in the attorney general's race, uh, winning over uh, the former uh, Speaker of the House. Uh, so in a contested, somewhat close race, but still uh, winning uh, a, a nomination uh, for attorney general over uh, someone with very you know, deep ties to the state Republican Party. Uh, so uh, things are certainly changing. Um, they're not negated uh, by the fact that uh, the caucus itself is unhappy with uh, getting a lot of primary challenges uh, to current incumbents. Uh, and so uh, struck back uh, a couple of days later. 
unfortunately for the, the sort of political system, um, partisanship uh, rules almost everything around us. Uh, and so people hoping that uh, voters will make fine distinctions between the candidates for attorney general, secretary of state, uh, and governor and state legislature, I think may be disappointed by how much uh, voters are able to differentiate among these candidates rather than just voting for Republican or Democratic candidates uh, down the line. So do you think that what's going on right now, if the election, and we know the elections, you know, where are we may, so we're six months away from the election. Um, when you and I have talked about this, your thoughts is that this may not be as helpful to Democrats uh, on the ballot as uh, some might think. Well, the, the national pattern is definitely that the association between all of these races is going up over time. So who you vote for uh, for president is who you vote for for governor is who you vote for for attorney general and secretary of state. There's always been an association, but that association is going up over time and the results, the election results association is near one. Uh, for uh, all of these uh, races. So uh, that that doesn't mean no voters will make a distinction and say vote for the Republican candidate for governor, but decide that the Secretary of State candidate is too extreme uh, or too unqualified. Um, but I think hoping for that to be a large portion of the population uh, is, is, is sort of an unlikely scenario. Charlie? Um, uh you know, as, as Matt says, voters sometimes do split their tickets. But uh, and we saw that a couple of years ago in the MSU Board of Trustees election where one Democrat was elected and, a, and one Republican uh, was elected. Um, I, I know that uh, Melanie Foster, longtime uh, MSU trustee, uh, Republican, um, more of an establishment Republican, was not uh, nominated to to take a, th a third term on the MSU Board of Trustees, and I think this is another manifestation of the 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 split between the Republican Party with uh, the um, uh, traditional or establishment wing of the party uh, really taking some some pretty pretty severe body blows in um, in uh, recent years. Uh, and in the Go ahead. I was just going to say, in that case, the challenger was somebody who was concerned about the swim team being uh, canceled. So it wasn't sort of clearly along these lines of kind of ideology or contesting the previous election. But Republicans have long had less respect for their current incumbent office holders uh, and uh, more support for amateur candidates. Amateur for us just means not previously holding any elected office. Uh, so those candidates have always been more likely to win Republican primaries than Democratic primaries. But now we're to the point where uh, even long-term incumbency uh, in a in a in a, a state board uh, election doesn't protect you. Well, I think it's I think to me it's rather interesting. Um, so at the statewide level, fealty to President Trump and the uh, uh, claims about the January sixth election being a fraud seem to be the markers by which you rise whether it was for attorney general, secretary of state, or state board of education or MSU board of trustees. So at the statewide level, that grassroots proves very strong. And, well, that, is, been, and that is the result of, of the Maddox. They have done a heck of a job 
of, of, of the grassroots. But then you turn around and as a state representative, Mr. Maddox gets booted out of his caucus for uh, recruiting candidates to incumbent state legislative Republicans. So I, I think it's going to be rather interesting here. Maddox said the next day that he had the best fundraising day he ever had. I mean, how far is this challenge to legislative Republicans going to go? It's quite possible that Mr. Maddox might actually recruit candidates that win, especially in heavily Republican seats, displacing more moderate Republicans, and then win the speakership, even though he's been kicked out of the caucus. Of course, this piles on top of the challenges that we in Michigan have faced for 30 years as a result of our fairly restrictive term limits. Even, even without what you were just describing, Arnold, um, most of the, there a lot of a lot of people in pretty important positions in the legislature are people with very very little legislative experience, and if what you just described in fact takes place, then the level of experience uh, will go down even further. Well, and the cycle may continue though. There's a long <laughs> there's a long history of the previous insurgents becoming the establishment to which the previous insurgents then, uh, the new insurgents uh, then then claim have, have sold out, especially in the Republican Party. So um, e even if that takes place, there will still be people arguing, um, especially when, when someone reaches an institutional position like Speaker of the House and inevitably has to make compromises over the budget and everything else, uh, then you will, you will see a new line of attack uh, on the, the previous uh, insurgents. But I don't think I, I guess I I wouldn't quite agree that it's sort of organizational politics at the elite level. I think there is, uh, you know, that that's where the Republican base is. Um, and it's not just in statewide elections. They won, uh, you know, there was a, a, a perennial candidate that won in a special election um, by switching his message to talking about election fraud and, and support for Donald Trump. So that just seems to be the, the message that's working with the Republican base. Well, let's move on to the next large issue looming in Michigan, the economy. And uh, Charlie, as the economist in our group, I'm going to ask you, what is going on? Yesterday, there was an announcement that uh, GDP was down, uh, yet we have some of the lowest unemployment in a long time. People are making more money, and uh, it's getting eaten up by continuing inflation. And uh, the Fed is again uh, saying that they're going to raise interest rates to try and cool things down. What's happening out there? Uh, well, we're just continuing the wild ride that we have experienced for two years now as a result of COVID. Um, the, the latest uh, thing, this uh, drop in GDP um, in the first quarter of this year relative to the previous quarter, the last quarter of 2021, a big part of that was yet another of the uh, weird consequences of COVID because due to all of the supply chain disruptions that we have seen for the last two years, um, uh, go back to the middle of last year, a lot of companies were building up their inventories because they weren't sure that they were going to have enough stuff to, to meet their customers' um, requirements, especially uh, around Christmas. And it turned out that in a lot of cases, they were able to build up enough inventory that they sailed through Christmas smoothly and they didn't run out. Well, 
them, in many cases, they've got this big stack of inventories that they don't need so much. And now the, there's been a dip in production, um, partly just to work that off. Um, that is something that uh, it, inventory cycles had almost disappeared from our economy because of um, really excellent uh, supply chain and uh, just-in-time uh, management of the production. Uh, but it's, this problem has reappeared uh, as a result of COVID. And then uh, you mentioned inflation. Uh, and, and I think this does uh, get back to what we were talking about, um, likely to create some pretty severe headwinds for Democrats, quite apart from the fact that uh, the party who occupy the White House often has trouble in the midterm elections. Um, uh, we don't know where inflation is going to be in, um, in six months, uh, but it's uh, now at levels that we haven't seen since the early 1980s, and that is not something that is setting very well with, uh, with voters. Um, the Federal Reserve has a mandate to try to maintain stable prices. And so they have already begun. Uh, actually, there are some who say they should have begun it earlier, but anyhow, they have already begun to raise interest rates to, to re restrict the supply of credit. And uh, you're seeing that in higher mortgage rates, uh, which is taking a little bit of the steam out of the housing market. Um, we are not in a recession now. Uh, this, this little blip of GDP, I would not call a recession, uh, but, Lots of analysts, you know, I, I read the, the news of the macroeconomic forecasters and analysts whose opinions I respect, and um, most of them are saying, uh, fasten your seatbelts, folks, because uh, uh, there is a chance of a recession sometime in the next uh, year or, or two, and it's a very, very difficult uh, uh, challenge facing the Fed to try to take the steam out of the the uh, overheated economy that's generating inflation, they want to do that without causing a recession. The, that's a tricky balance. Yeah, well, if folks haven't been buckled in for two years, I think they've flown <laughs> off the roller coaster already <laughs> uh, because Fair what enough. goes up Continue. must come down. And uh, certainly these, uh, I'd almost say, you know, we, we talked a lot about, uh, 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 you know, we used the Nike symbol or the V or, or whatever, uh, to describe how the economy might be uh, as the pandemic struck. And it, it, to me, it's it's looking more like a U right now because we went up. And I, I think, um, as you noted, uh, those in the know that follow the numbers uh, believe a, a recession is, is next. So what goes up must come down. We'll see. But it's um, uh, there, there's a lot of strains on the economy. And of course, the uh, um, the war in, in Ukraine is not helping because it is disrupting global energy markets and um, the global markets for wheat and corn. Uh, and um, we're, we're, you know, thousands of miles away from that, but we are not um, isolated from right. Right. global events because of the interconnectedness of the world economy. And underneath all that is uh, China's continuing zero COVID policy, shutting down large areas of the country that will no doubt dis continue to disrupt the supply chain. That is, that is an ongoing, so we've got, we've got this whole series of disruptions and it's, um, it's not all that surprising that we're seeing um, a, a lot of uh, 
unusual things happening in uh, prices and quantities of, of economic activity. Well, let's turn now to uh, Dr. Joe Hamm. Uh, as I noted, uh, Dr. Hamm has been working with others on a project to find out which sources of information people have tended to trust during the pandemic. Joe, given the previous conversation, uh, it seems like people are going to have to make a choice about whether they trust what they're hearing, whether it's COVID or the recession, what one politician says, what one politician doesn't say. But why don't you take a few minutes to discuss uh, the work that was done by you and your team and your findings? Absolutely. Um, first, thank you all. I really appreciate the invitation to, to be here today. Um, so as, as Andy mentioned, I'm faculty here at MSU, um, a primary appointment in the School of Criminal Justice. Um, but my, my focus really is on trying to, to unpack what trust is. Um, and so I, my, so my passion really is, is focused on trying to figure out how we measure trust, how we protect it, how we build trust. Um, we argue that in order to do that well, you really need a nuanced understanding of what trust itself is. Um, so in terms of context, I've been very, very interested in governance contexts, being that I'm in a school of criminal justice, I do a lot of work thinking about public relationships with justice agencies, but really any part of the uh, executive governance with a really heavy focus on, on state and, and federal as well. Uh, but the project that we're talking about here really grew out of some work with um, our principal investigator, Ben Sade, who's at the University of Kent in the UK. Um, he was also working separately with another of our investigators, Will Jennings, uh, at the University of Southampton. I mean, one of the really stark things for us about the, the COVID pandemic has been really the number of actors that have some kind of responsibility for, for responding to the pandemic, for distributing information about it. Um, and together as a group, we wanted to understand um, how much those various sources of COVID, uh, COVID information are trusted, why they're trusted, and what that trust does. And we were lucky enough to be able to talk the, uh, the British Academy and then the Social Science Research Council here in the U.S. out of some funding to do that work. Uh, so together with some research assistants, both at, at both of the universities in the UK and then uh, an MD candidate here in our College of Medicine at MSU, uh, we held six focus groups in December of last year in the UK, um, eight of them in the US in February and in May. And then we conducted a large national survey of each country. And then within that, su that survey itself, we embedded a conjoint or a choice experiment where we asked participants to look at, at two fake profiles of either a scientist, of two scientists or two politicians. So we could understand how small changes in and those profiles impacted how trusted that specific individual was. So kind of coming back to this first question on this project, um, we wanted to, we asked our participants how much of a, how much they trusted a set of eight different information sources about uh, information about COVID and then how useful they felt that that source's information was. And in both countries, the top three were the same. It was doctors, scientists, and the media, but there was a little bit of shuffling in order there. Um, so people generally argued that their local doctor was the most trusted, followed by scientists. Um, scientists, though, were the most useful, and that was followed by the media. And those orders really held for most people. So this held across high and low education, high and low income, and across a couple of the different minoritized groups that we were able to sample from. But we did find that our socially vulnerable groups, so thinking here about our, our low income, our low education, our, low, uh, our, our minoritized groups, they tended to report slightly less trust in doctors, scientists, and politicians, but slightly more trust in local, ethnic, and, and faith leaders. So then our next question, why, why would people trust these sources? What really pushes that trust around? And for this, we really focused on the scientists and the politicians. So these are the, the major information sources of those three, 
that really are presenting their own information. So we're not looking here at the media, which is usually more presenting information that, that came from another source. And for scientists, the answer here is incredibly clear. Um, scientists are trusted to the extent that the public feels that they're competent. I know my colleague, one of my colleagues here at MSU, John Bessley, would, uh, would hate it if I didn't mention that those other characteristics are also important for scientists. But like with a lot of his work, we find that scientists really are going to take the biggest hit on trust when there's evidence that they aren't competent. And I just want to tag here that some of this may play in that those changes in conversation we heard around COVID and people's lack of trust because things were changing or the science was changing. Um, it's really this competence hit that we're probably seeing happen there. Uh, for politicians, it really looks like they have a bit of a more a difficult road or more complicated road to trust. Um, for them, competence still matters, but it matters just as much as the extent to which they care, the extent to which they're transparent, the extent to which they have integrity. And again, all of that stuff matters for scientists as well. But for politicians, it really seems that those are weighed much more evenly in terms of thinking about how trustworthy they are. And then for our last question, um, this, this question about the effects of that trust. Like most research in this area, we do find that future vaccination intention, approval of measures like stay-at-home orders, mask mandates, those are related to both to scientists, trust in scientists in both countries. But the US was a little bit distinct um, in that the extent to which American participants intended to get a future vaccine or approved of these public health measures was also really strongly related to their trust in politicians. Now, it's not super clear why exactly that's happening. It could be that COVID is just so political in the US, or it could be something happening in the UK that's had a fair few scandals around politicians and COVID in particular. But it does seem that the participants in the UK were doing a little bit more, or a little bit of a better job separating those political influences to their reactions to COVID than we're seeing in the US, which at least to the extent that these measures are not politically driven or scientifically driven is, is kind of what you'd be looking for. Jill, one of the questions I have, and, and you kind of hinted at it a little bit, um, there are many sources of information, including science sources of information uh, that we've seen during this time, some of them conflicting uh, from time to time. Um, how, how does that impact the public's trust when they hear from one scientist or group of scientists uh, that, you know, you should be doing A, B, C, and D. And then from the other group of scientists, well, maybe not so much. I mean, remember in the beginning, um, no need to wear a mask. Uh, and then as evidence came about, we're wearing masks. So how, you know, how much does that play a role in people's trust of science? It, it's almost like you know, one month we hear a study, it's okay to eat, eat eggs. And the next month we hear a study, no, it's not okay to eat eggs. I mean, uh, so how, how does the public handle that? It's a challenge for sure. Um, so setting aside some of the, the nuance in, in some of those, those particular studies that you're talking about, um, what I, I think our study here really highlights is that the thing that the public is really looking to, when they're looking to science and science communication, they're looking to this understanding of confidence. That you, we might expect, and there is some evidence that things, that things like integrity or transparency, that those do matter, and they, they do push around values in our study as well. But there is, in as much as we, as what we're finding is that this is really confidence pushing it around, I would assume that what's happening with the, the kinds of changes you're talking about are the hit that they're taking on confidence. 
that in a situation where there's this argument that, that science is one thing, it is one answer, it means one thing, uh, when you see that change, it calls into question the, the confidence of the people who are doing these studies. I mean, one of the, the knee-jerk reactions to finding a study that contradicts a previous one is that someone was wrong. Someone did something wrong. Someone pulled some piece out of that that's incorrect. Um, and you could see that as potentially having a hit on integrity, but integrity isn't the thing that really pushed this around for our study anyway. Um, but I, I do think the other piece of this, and now I'm, I'm thinking more of a science communication and maybe a, a little bit of a policy angle to it, um, is the, the ability to communicate the, the limits of science and the importance of, of values and of, of management of, of making decisions about what that concrete information means. So you use the example of masks. Um, at least in the read of the, the literature that I am aware of, the utility of masks in at least thwarting the, the, the transmission of COVID, that science has been relatively settled across this whole process. What's changed is the other values and the other concerns that are involved. So there's been Initially, there was the issue of if everyone runs out and buys masks, we won't have the ability to actually use them where we most need them. Then as that supply becomes a little bit more stable and a little bit more something you can rely on itself, wearing masks becomes really important because of the benefits that it has in, in reducing transmission. And then you see places kind of rolling back mask mandates in large part because of the, the strong reactions people have to wearing them. And so we're mixing in this supply chain question, this transmission question, this um, public values question is all kind of what's pushing around what looks like changes in science. And there's an, there's an educational component to that. How does the uh, politics or perceived politics of scientists or experts themselves uh, play, play into it? Uh, is, is it, I, I've seen some polling that suggests that there's just as much trust in science uh, as a process on the left and right, but not necessarily the particular scientists uh, in the, who speak out. So the, the profiles that we, we used in our study for this choice experiment, or conjoint experiment we're talking about, did talk about separation from, from science. And we talked a little bit about the extent of separation from politics. And so we were able to use that as one of the, the elements that might be pushing trust around. And it is dwarfed by, by this issue of whether or not they're a competent scientist. Um, but you do see it pushed around for sure. And there is um, a lot of what trust does is it helps make sense out of ambiguity. And so when you see someone who has a particular political bent to, to what you're hearing from them on the most part, you make assumptions, you make sense out of what it is they're saying and why they're saying it based on their political affiliation. And so you would absolutely see it. Uh, but the story for us just really remains in this confidence question. It's a, it's kind of un, unfortunate from my perspective. I consider myself a scientist and now a biology acquaintance, biologist acquaintance of mine says social science is not science, but we social scientists like Matt and I, we do try to think scientifically. And one part of that is you render judgments based on the best evidence that you have. And then sometimes new evidence comes in and you are forced to change your judgment. It doesn't mean that you were wrong or that you were unethical, but to somebody from the outside looking in at that process, they say, well, gosh, why are you flip-flopping? It must be that you're either incompetent or, um, or a fraud or, or, or something. And that's, I think that's unfortunate, but it's inev almost inevitable that at least some portions of the public would, would, would have that view. I do agree with you. I, you hope that 
truth would never change, but that science would be dynamic. Um, and that especially in the way that science is trying to, to unpack things that we partially understand, you expect change, you want change, you want that debate, you want that conversation, you want that vibrance. Um, and I maybe I'm naive and hoping that there's this can be handled via communication, but being able to to help communicate where we're talking about a study contradicting a study versus a series of studies being contradicted by an individual one versus really large bodies of literature that are shaped, that are shifting, that we have a huge body of literature saying one thing and we're, we're seeing a change in the field as something maybe we might come to understand a little bit better. Um, that's hard. It's hard to get that, that kind of a nuance across in science communication. And again, maybe I'm naive and hoping that it can be a communication question, but getting that across feels really important. Well, I think this has uh, the work that you're doing and your colleagues are doing, Dr. Ham, has implications certainly moving forward uh, for future health emergencies or emergencies created by natural disasters. Whatever that might be, who is the public going to trust in terms of uh, affording them appropriate information, accurate information, where they feel safe? And I'm sure that uh, once uh, Mr. Musk takes over Twitter, we'll all have a better platform for that to occur as well. So um, say that tongue in cheek, of course, but uh, I want to thank you for your, for your presence here today, Dr. Ham. Uh, appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are, are doing. Uh, especially in terms of its uh, relevance to issues going on today. Thank you for being with us. Thank you so um, much. Matt and Charlie, always a pleasure to be with you. Any last thoughts? I, I just wanted to ask one other question for Joe to get a sort of parting advice for the political side. So you have a future governor, they're trying to bring up who they perceive as a nonpartisan expert to guide, guide the public. Is there anything they can do to make that scenario less less political than it was this time? Oh, I want to say yes. Um, in terms of making it less political, that feels like a really, really tough one to unpack. Um, but in terms of making it a situation where people are more likely to trust a particular source, uh, my, my kind of my parting thoughts here would be to, to highlight the, the role of vulnerability in thinking about trust. We usually think of trust as a, a willingness to accept that someone else can make some kind of a decision that could hurt you. And so if you're the person being entrusted with that vulnerability, it's incredibly important to be able to signal directly or indirectly that that vulnerability is protected, that you're taking it seriously, that you're thinking about it. Um, and I do think that there is this, this political, it's politicized habit of picking vulnerabilities that are the ones we really wanna pay attention to, but to the extent that you can step across those and speak to a wide variety of vulnerabilities, you should see that increase in, um, in trust unless that gets attacked then by that, pol that, pol that political polarization, which it's just so intractable. Well, and I'm, I'm sure that there are classes being designed right now where Dr. Fauci will be the focal point of uh, a communicator uh, do's and don'ts uh, during a time such as this, because of course you could always have the right message, but it's the messenger that uh, needs to carry it. So. Charlie, anything else? Well, I just want to say it's been a pleasure to uh, be on the program with uh, Professor Ham and and and, uh, and Joe. I just want you to know uh, you seem like a very trustworthy guy, so I <laughs> trust you. That's great, thanks, Charlie. 
and that's all the time we have, folks, for this edition of State of the State. My thanks again to Russ White and the staff at WKAR for their support of this program. Join us again next month on State of the State.